to him, God causing the situation and Satan then taking advantage of it, of course, and doing his dirty work. One thing that always is the case is if God has something that he wants done that's uh, pretty foul, pretty hard, pretty difficult, has to do with destruction or punishing, Satan is always just sitting back there saying, me, 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 uh, I want to do it. So he had no problem when God said, you know, we, we need to uh, work Job over a little. Uh, Satan was ready to work him over a lot. <clears throat> In fact, did. <clears throat> did everything but kill him. So last night we left him in boils, uh, terrible pain, and as much as probably a person can suffer as far as pain is concerned. Let's go on down. I think I mentioned at least briefly here where in chapter 3 he had begun to curse the day that he was born. Wished he had never been born. Uh, I guess you can hurt enough and suffer enough that you begin to say, I wish I had never been on this earth. He didn't curse God, but he was uh, very... in a very deep depression there because of the pain and what had happened. He says down in chapter or verse 25 of chapter 3, For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come to me. <clears throat> now what had happened? Job had some fears. He feared loss of money or riches, and he feared loss of his children. And in fact, we read at the very beginning how he was giving sacrifices because he thought his children were going astray, and he was asking God to preserve them and protect them and help them for his sake, even though he knew they were not living as they should be living. So he truly feared losing his children and those are pretty common fears with mankind. Uh, you don't want to lose your children. Uh, that's a very scary thing. And if you do, through death or some other way, <clears throat> it is very, very traumatic. But wealthy people, I doubt if there's one that doesn't fear losing his wealth. Because when you have wealth... There are always people coming out of the woodwork trying to get it. They want what you have. And many of them will go through all kinds of machinations and plots and plans and conspiracies to take away from you what you have. Just so very, they might like you. That's okay. That doesn't matter. They like what you have even more than they like you. So they're after it. And that is a very, very common thing. I think that one is something that rich people fear far more than poor people. You're poor, you're, yeah, what have I got to lose, you know? But uh, when you have something, there is always a fear that it could be lost. I don't know how some people stay sane when they see the stock market going like this when they have a lot of money in there. And uh, they're afraid they're going to lose it. So it's not just robbers and thieves, but also uh, situations and systems that can fail them. 
So there's always that fear. Now, Eliphaz the Temanite had some things to say to him. And I want to focus just for a moment here. Let's go down to verse 7. He says, Remember, I pray you, whoever perished being innocent. I don't know that I read that one last night, but I made the comment that one of the first things we do when we see somebody get in trouble is we think, oh, they must have sinned. They must have done something wrong, and this is God's punishment on them. I think that's very common in the church. I think it comes out of our own self-righteousness, where we're always looking at the other person and thinking they're the one doing wrong, and it makes us feel better about however wrong we are, if someone's even worse than we are. (laughs) That's just the way human nature works. So, Eliphaz spouts what he thinks here is great wisdom to Job. You must be a dirty, rotten sinner somehow, Job, for whoever perished if he was innocent. Or where were the righteous cut off? Now, he didn't understand a lot of history, apparently, or prophecy, because there have been righteous people cut off. Uh, If you want to look at it that way, Enoch got cheated out of about 600 years, dying at uh, 365, and God caused him to die, apparently. It says all all his days were that, no matter what you might think of another scripture. And look at all the apostles who were cut off and killed. Uh, Christ himself was destined to die, and the Bible was full of stories about that. Even Moses' prophecies uh, showed Christ would die. So that was all available. Well, did would he, life has if thought, well, Christ must ascend somewhere. The innocent don't perish. And we tend to judge that way. There must be something wrong with you or you would not be having trouble. You need to examine yourself and find out what is wrong and fix it. Well, here's a case where that was absolutely upside down and wrong. God had said that Job did not have any sin in him. You take the Ten Commandments and go down one by one through the whole ten Job was not breaking any of those. So, if you're judged righteous by the law, and you're being cut off, and these men at this point probably thought Job was going to die. Had you taken one look at him, you you figured, yeah, this, this guy's had it. You sow wickedness, you reap the same. Well, God does say that we reap what we sow, doesn't he? But there are many, many scriptures that mitigate that and show that the righteous do suffer uh, chastening and afflictions and trials, troubles, and tribulations, and so on. So just because somebody is having trouble or is in trouble, we cannot automatically conclude that there's sin involved. If we do, we're going on very dangerous ground because Eliphaz and his two friends 
got on some pretty dangerous ground when they were trying to uh, counsel Job. And they got on serious ground with God. And we're going to see that in a little bit, uh, that a lot of what they had to say didn't hold water with God. Because what he says here is in direct contradiction to what God had told Satan. So it didn't fit. Now let's go back to kind of the end of this book. I I don't want to try to take the time. It would be very time-consuming, and there's a lot of vanity, ego, vain philosophy, and various things through the book. And they're of value to us to look at, to understand from. But in the amount of, amount of time I have for this series, uh, we don't have time to look at all that. But here in about uh, verse, let's see, chapter 36, Eli proceeded and said, Suffer me a little, i got some things to say. And then he recounted some of the power of God, which was a a good thing. But he says in verse 23 of chapter 37, Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. So he's, he's implying here that you're getting justice, Job, even here at the end, at the last things he has to say. He respects not any that are wise of heart. <clears throat> so he says, you got problems, Job, and God's not respecting you, and that's why you're in the shape you're in. And that sort of sums up their philosophies throughout the book, is there's something wrong with you, you got to figure it out, you got to quit sinning, is kind of the theme of the advice given. Now, there was something wrong with Job. God does not do the things that happen to him unless there's a reason for it. God always has our good in mind, and he will always do good for us in the long run. And even when we are suffering, there's a reason that is pointed at us learning or doing better or whatever. Now, they were wrong in their human egocentric philosophies about what was going on because they didn't understand spiritual things. But there was a problem between Job and God. Satan could not see it. He did not know what the problem was. He just knew that God had reason to afflict Job, and that was all he needed, because he wants to see everybody suffer and die. That's his goal toward human beings, suffer and die. He did that with Adam and Eve, and he's been doing it with everybody since. <clears throat> so, there's something, I think probably the biggest issue with Satan is that he doesn't understand self-righteousness. God is righteous. Satan is not. But Satan likes to appear righteous. And Christ even said that the demons can transform themselves and look like angels of light. And here at the end, they're going to want to appear righteous. 
There will be signs and wonders in the heaven like the ball of fire that came. That was a sign and a wonder back then and destroyed 7,000 sheep all in one fireball. So Satan has great power, and we read in the book of Revelation how there will be mighty signs and wonders in the heavens that Satan can do those things. Now, we shouldn't marvel at that if we go back and see some of the things Satan did in the past, and then we read what he's about to do, and probably an even greater drama and splendor in size than in the past. But Satan no longer understands righteousness. He is unrighteous, but he tries to appear as righteous. And how will the beast and the false prophet appear? They will appear to the whole of mankind as righteous and good and the ones to follow. So Satan has the capacity of trying to act righteous, act spiritual, without being spiritual and righteous. And he can get that across to people in the snap of a finger. I think as I recounted last night, at the end of it, when he comes up against millions of people in God's camp, he will turn their minds from God to himself just like that. Somehow, he will convince them he is more righteous than God and the one to follow instead of God, who have been ruled in peace and happiness and love and prosperity for a thousand years. And he'll turn them just like that. I don't know how long it took him to turn a third of the angels. Probably not too long. I don't know. But we do have in Scripture how long it will take him to turn men. And how quickly he can. So, there are some spiritual things going on here that Satan doesn't really grasp when he tries to appear spiritual, but isn't. Now, that's what the Pharisees were doing. And who were they? Sons of Satan, Christ said in so many words. You have your father, the devil. And what were the Pharisees? Self-righteousness was the biggest key. They wanted... Everybody to see all the good deeds they'd done, and they wanted to appear righteous while they were stealing widows' homes, while they were stealing from their own parents, while they were breaking every commandment there is, they wanted to appear righteous. Now, you and I are afflicted with the same disease. We want to appear righteous, and yet we don't always want to put out the effort to do what is righteous. And that borders on hypocrisy pretty quickly. And that's what Christ called the Pharisees. Hypocrites. Snakes. Because they would appear to charm you, and yet they would bite you. Now, when we have people who want to appear righteous without going to the effort of being righteous, we have the problems that we have in the church today. I'm not saying just this group. It includes this group. It includes everybody that was in Worldwide Church of God who are all at this point in a Laodicean condition. That was the big thing Christ got them on. 
you are, you think you're righteous and you're not. I almost quoted it, it didn't quite. But you, I'll go back and read it. Then I, then, then I get it right. Revelation 3. Isn't it funny how sometimes you can quote a scripture from in the beginning and sometimes you can't remember three words out of it. <clears throat> the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says Christ, 15, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. I would you were one way or the other because I can't stand lukewarm people. Verse 17, though, because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, he's speaking of their spiritual condition here. If it were physical, you would know if you were blind. You would know if you were naked. You would know all those things physically if it were referring to that. But it's a spiritual condition that he's discussing because those are things that you can hide from yourself. So he says, anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Somebody sent me a copy of the Berean from uh, John Reitenbaugh, oh, I guess it's been about a week or so ago where he was discussing uh, a problem, and it was from, I think, Galatians 6, but he was discussing the idea that we're here to love. We're here to be producing the fruit of the Spirit, and yet he said, I look around and I see backbiting and gossip and put-down and anger, uh, judgment. I, I'm just quoting words that come to mind. He probably didn't use exactly those words, but that was the gist of it. He says, I look around and this is what I see. Now, how can we say I am righteous and yet we're doing all these things that Satan does? Accusing, backbiting, imagining evil. Those are all things Satan does. And yet here we have people in the church doing that well, they claim to be righteous. Is it any different, really, than the Pharisees who claimed to be righteous and wrote all their good deeds on their cuffs and then went and stole and lied and killed and cheated and broke all the commandments and yet claimed righteousness? So what they had then was self-righteousness. Not righteousness by God's standard, but by their standard. Because they... Sinful though they were, still considered themselves righteous. Now that is the crux of self-righteousness, where I judge me to be righteous. You have to ask God, he might have a whole different opinion. Christ had a totally different opinion of the Pharisees than they had. So, I've talked about these issues a lot here. And lo and behold, I pick up some other pastor from some other church, and he's talking about the same things. And I go and read Revelation 3, and God says, you think you're righteous, but you aren't. Go and buy gold tried in the fire, and repent, 
and quit being lukewarm and thinking you're okay. But isn't that overall the attitude we had in Worldwide Church of God? We're better than the world. We have more knowledge. This is the only true church. So we, even though we might have said, we wouldn't have said, we're better than you, thinking of the world. We wouldn't have said it that way. But we had ways among ourselves of letting each other know that we're okay. We are the church of God. And were we right? Yes, where we were the church of God. Boo, hoo, hoo, hoo. Because we weren't the church of God we should have been. That was the problem. And we had become self-righteous, over-righteous in our own minds. And yet we would say, if someone asked us, are you righteous? We would say, oh, I have many sins. I have much to overcome. We would say that publicly, and yet somehow, some way, we still maintained in our minds that we were okay. And it kind of fought with what else was going in there, because you knew in your heart and mind that you had problems and attitudes and emotions and actions that were wrong. You knew that, but you sure didn't want anybody to find that out. So you would cover for yourself. Now, we would admit, maybe, that we have sins. That's pretty general. And since Christ said everybody does and everybody has, it doesn't bother us to admit that we have sins. But if somebody says... What are your sins? We have more trouble then. Or if they look at us and say, I see your sin and it is this. Then that really gets to us. Because it shatters our illusion. It shatters that wall that we're trying to build, the illusion of righteousness. So God looked through the illusion and said, no, you're not what you're trying to say you are. You don't even know you're miserable and blank and blind and filthy and so on. If you don't know it, you're not going to clean it up. So then God spewed us out and said, Now look yourselves over and start washing the vomit off and the stink and the smell of Laodiceanism. Clean yourself up and become righteous. Satan likes to consider himself righteous when he is not. And he likes to think of himself as more righteous than God. And you know what? You and I do too. We allow ourselves to come beneath the standard that God sets frequently. His standard is here, and we're somewhere along here. And it's, it's been said in the church that 
the minister's lowest standard was the member's highest standard. If you see him doing this, which was below the bar, you would come up almost to the where he was in conduct. And human beings, being human beings, I'm afraid that often was the case. Well, if he can do it, I can do it. You know, is it right? No, but if he can do it, I can do it. We find ways to justify. That's just one of them. We find many ways to justify doing and thinking what we want to think. And when we do that, we are diminishing God's Word, right? Because if you don't maintain the standard of His Word, you're allowing yourself somehow to justify being beneath it, then there's idolatry there. You're saying that your standard is good enough. You don't need God's standard. That's what the Pharisees were doing. We don't need God's standard. We have our standard. And it's good enough. See my good deeds? I'm doing all right. Now, is it natural and normal to like to think about ourselves as righteous and good? We would all like to be able to do that. And I don't think that it's wrong that if we grow and overcome, we come to the point, apart from self-righteousness, that we could say, now Paul didn't say, I'm righteous. He said, O wretched man that I am, the things I want to do I don't do, and the things that I do want to do or that I should do I don't you know what, I say, what I'm trying to say. And yet, toward the end of his life, he says, I have run a good race. I've fought the fight, and I know that it is laid up for me to be in the kingdom of God. So, toward the end of his life, he could look, he could read the words of God that said, if you will overcome, if you will grow, uh, I will give you eternal life. So he looked back and he says, no, I'm not perfect, but I've been fighting long and hard and I have been overcoming and I feel that I'm at the place that God's mercy and His grace and the forgiveness through Christ's blood is sufficient that I am going to make it into the kingdom of God. Now he tried to get us to believe that. But our problem is, when we try to have faith that God will get us there, we still recognize our lacks and our faults, and we get discouraged by that. So if you see someone that says, hey, I'm okay, I'm doing well, uh, everything in my life is good, and I'm serving God, you have to stop and think. What are they thinking, and what am I thinking? Because there is always the possibility that vanity, ego, and self is in there in making that kind of statement. So, we have to be honest with ourselves, which is what the Pharisees weren't. We have to be honest with ourselves, which is what the whole of the church of God was not. And we have to recognize our faults and our sins, and that's what these days are about, is recognizing them and working on them to overcome them.
to be brutally honest with ourselves during these seven days. Do we take the time? I mean, we're here, we, we eat some, we come to services for an hour, hour and a half, two hours a day. Uh, we go about life while we're here. But do we make a point of finding time in the day or night to meditate, to think about our lives, to think about our lives in the light of God's Word, and work at seeing any leavening that is in our thought processes, and then working to get rid of it. It's easy to say we're here to put out sin. It's hard to put out sin, <laughs> you know. And if you don't recognize it, you're not going to put it out. It's just like ingredients on some packages. You don't know what's in it until you read and read and see. Now, now I know what's in it. Out it goes, or in its days, depending on what you read. So you have to examine it. See, what it, well, see what's there before you know whether to keep it or toss it. And you have to examine your thought processes and your mind uh, and see what is there that needs to go away and what can stay. And you know, everybody has bright, sunny thoughts. Everybody has some gray thoughts. And everybody, at some point in time, has some pretty dark thoughts. That's just the part of being human. So you have to examine you. I can't examine you. I can only examine me. And that's discouraging enough. I don't want to examine you too. Because we all sin and come short of the glory of God. Now, I do believe, it isn't spelled out here completely and totally, but I do believe that Job's problem was more self-righteousness than anything else. Because we can read what God said to him, and you kind of have to read between the lines at what God is driving at, what he's trying to get Job to understand, and then what Job finally recognizes. Now, his friends and compatriots could not get to him the way God got to him. They didn't have the understanding that God had, or the understanding of God himself. And they thought, Job, you must be the problem. And in a sense, they were right. Job did have a problem, but it was a spiritual problem. And they were under the administration of the Old Testament, and he was not breaking any of the laws, and yet he was a man who apparently understood the spiritual better than the average bear, just as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and others were. So it was a spiritual problem that God was working with, which was the biggest problem that Satan has, and some of the attitude that came out of these men as they talked to him that they had themselves. So let's come down here to chapter 38 and see if we can discern, and let's think about not just Job here, but let's think of Worldwide Church of God, Sardis that died, and Laodicea which succeeded it, which 
did not have a clear view of themselves. Let's start with that point. The Laodiceans, which we all became, did not have a clear view of their own righteousness or lack thereof. God says you're blind, you can't see it. So you and I have to come to see something we did not see when we were there. Now some of you are too young to have been there, so you get off the hook here, I guess. Well, not really. We all face the same spiritual problems. We all face the same human nature and the wiles of Satan the devil, whether we're young or old. So that that doesn't really matter. But But I know that I have my memory bank, and it goes back quite some time. But I have to realize sometimes that people who are 30, 35 years old don't even remember Worldwide Church of God. Never saw or heard Herbert Armstrong, you know. So they're going on history, and sometimes I need perhaps to reach into my own memory bank and bring some of those things forward because you don't have it in your heads. You didn't see it, didn't witness it. You may have read some about it or heard older people talking about some of it, but it's not in your own memory bank. So uh, that perhaps needs updated some. And that not that what the Bible does? Starts with Genesis with the very beginning and goes through and shows us things that aren't in our memory bank, things that we missed that happened historically. So a lot of things happened that were important in Worldwide Church of God. And one of them was that we became self-righteous and could not understand our own spiritual state. And therefore God says, repent and anoint your eyes so you can see. So where do we find that ointment that we need? This book, the Word of God, prayer and meditation. You have to think about these things and take time to think about yourself and how you fit with the prayers of the people in this book and the things that are written here. And that does not... We get flashes at times, but that does not come automatically where we get introspective and search our own hearts and minds as to what is good and bad. Sometimes we recognize, oh, that wasn't a good thought, or I shouldn't have said that. So we recognize some of those things even as we do them or right after, usually a little late. But do we really delve into our own psyche and mind and ask God to show us what needs fixed? Show me what I need to learn. Teach me, guide me, and lead me into your truth. We need to ask him to do that and then go to his word and use it as a mirror of our soul. Now, God sticks a mirror in front of Job's face here in chapter 38. Then the eternal answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Speaking of Eliphaz here. He says, then gird up now your loins like a man. Don't whimper. 
Don't sit there on your boils and say, poor, poor, pitiful me, and I feel sorry for myself and all this. He says, I want you to gird up your loins like a man. Let's face these things here. Let's, let's not be uh, sissy about it. For I will demand of you and answer you me. Not your friends, but answer me. I'm about to say some things here. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. Okay, there's the first question. I don't see an answer. (laughs) Where were you? Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know? Or who has stretched out the line upon it? Who can even measure the things I put out there? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? What holds it together? You know, did I invent bungee cords way back then and I'm kind of keeping it together with duct tape and bungees? Who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut up the sea with doors when it broke forth as if it issued out of the womb? Have you ever stood on the beach and wondered... Why aren't those waves coming on in? They look like they're about to. Then they crash and subside. When I made the cloud the garment thereof and thick darkness swaddling band for it, uh, the canopy perhaps that we talked about in Genesis, and broke up for it my decreed place and set bars and doors to stop whatever I wanted to stop. And I said, Hitherto shall you come but no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days and caused the day spring to know his place? Now, what is this a lesson in so far? (coughs) Humility comes to mind as the first word. You know, where were you when I did all this? Ooh, I'm beginning to feel smaller here. Job must have had a pretty high estimation of himself, okay? Had he not had, God would not have started out this dial, this monologue with where were you? What were you doing? He's beginning to show the comparison between Job, and Job was feeling smaller and smaller, and himself, who was far greater. Even his friends had mentioned some of these things about God, but they didn't get the full picture of how great he is as compared to us, and Job must not have gotten it either. And I think neither do we. We need to look at the things he has created, as Romans 1 tells us, and marvel at the things God has done. And it doesn't have to be a majestic mountain. Sometimes I look at a leaf just curling out of a lilac stem. And it's such an incredible thing that where did that come from? I couldn't make it. I couldn't make it happen. The greatest thing I could do maybe would be pull it off. And that doesn't help anything. But that's about the limit of my power is to destroy something that has been made. I certainly can't make it. So we need to look at those things. And that's what God's telling Job to do. Look at all this stuff. Where were you? Oh, <coughs> he got real quiet. 
Have you commanded the morning since your days? Cause the day spring to know his place? How much control do you have over the sunrise? That it might take hold to the end of the earth, that the wicked might be shaken out of it. It is turned as clay to the seal, and they stand as a garment. God has set them, can't be removed. And from the wicked their light is withheld, and the high arm shall be broken. God says, I'm powerful enough. It doesn't matter who, who you think you are. I can break you. doesn't matter who you thought you were, Job. I sick the devil on you and I pretty well broke you, didn't I? And when you sat there with the boils, you said, oh, I wish I had never been born. His opinion of himself had begun to get smaller just by what God caused to come upon him. He wasn't a sinner, per se. He wasn't breaking the law. And yet he had a high opinion of himself. And he didn't realize the vast difference there is between God and us. Because he was a man among men. Some say he built the pyramids in Egypt. I don't know. Some say he did mighty and wondrous works. And maybe he did. And he was a very wealthy man. And people in that position tend to think pretty highly of themselves, don't they? Pride comes pretty easy. Came to Satan. He had a high position. Oh, I must be something. But he disillusioned himself, and then when the battle started, God showed him who he wasn't. Uh, I won't take time to read all of this. He goes along the same lines, but we get the picture, I think. Verse 24, By what way is the light parted, which scatters the east wind upon the earth? Who has divided a water course for the overflowing of waters or a way for the lightning of thunder? I just stand in awe and amazement sometimes out here at some of our thunder and lightning storms, and I don't have a clue how all that happens, and there's certainly no way to stop it. It's just an awesome thing to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness where there is no man. To satisfy the ground. And then he starts talking in verse 31. Can you bind the sweet influences of Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? Can you bring forth Maseroth in his season? Or can you guide uh, Arcturus with his sons? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you set the dominion thereof in the earth? I mean, we look up and the stars do their thing. And we can't do a thing about it. We can look. If we study a little bit, we can even identify some of the things that God has them all named and remembers their names. Sometimes you meet somebody and can't remember their name three seconds later. I do. It just sometimes goes in one ear and out the other and doesn't even stop to register. I have to work at that sometimes. Where did wisdom come from? Verse 36. Then he talks about the winds and so on. Who provides the raven his food? Verse 41. And when his young ones cry to God, they wander for lack of meat. Chapter 39. Do you know the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or can you mark when the hinds calve? I've raised animals for years and years, and I still can't do it. They'll 
give birth when they get good and ready to give birth. And I think they ought to do it tonight while it's nice and warm. They'll wait till tomorrow night when it's hailing and cold. You know, they do it when it's their time. Can you number the months that they fulfill or know that you the time when they bring forth? Uh, it talks about the wild asses and how they get taken care of. And what do you know about that? Uh, and how, let's see, the unicorn, verse 9, will the unicorn be willing to serve you or abide by your crib? Can you bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow, or will he harrow the valleys after you? You can plow with oxen, he says, but you're going to get it done with a unicorn? Just how good do you think you are? How great do you think you are? You really think he's going to bring your seed to your barn? Think again. Who gave the goodly wings to the peacocks, verse 13, or wings and feathers to the ostrich? She leaves her eggs in the dust and warms them in the dust and forgets that people may step on them. And she's hardened against her young ones, verse 16. What do you know about that? How'd that happen? Verse 19, Have you given the horse strength? Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Can you make him afraid as a grasshopper? And then he talks about how the horse will go into war and there's swords and spears, and he'll just charge right in there as if he had no fear whatsoever. Because that's what his rider told him to do, and he's going to go in there. An amazing thing. Verse 27, Does the eagle mount up at your command and make her nest on high? She dwells and abides on the rock, the crag of the rock, the strong place, and from there she seeks the prey, and her eyes behold far off, and her young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is she, tearing whatever's dead apart and hauling it to her babies with the blood dripping off it for them to eat. And God goes on. Moreover, the Eternal answered Job and said, Job hadn't said anything yet. God's still talking. And Job's shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Shall he that contends with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproves God, let him answer it. Sometimes we even try to do that. Why are you doing this? Why would you do that? Why would you do this to me? Job might have asked that in his own heart and mind. What's going on here? Habakkuk kind of got in a little bit of that attitude. He says, how long, O Lord? Don't you see this is happening and that's happening and this is happening and this is happening? We're all in trouble down here. How long is it going to be before you deliver us? And then he said, oh, wait a minute. I think I better go sit and be still. <laughs> and wait for God to deliver me instead of calling him into question. Habakkuk was the prophet of God. And yet he had worked himself into an attitude that he suddenly realized, I shouldn't be thinking this. I better shut up and go sit down and wait and see what God does. And that's just before the book of Zephaniah, which talks about the crash and all the things that are about to come down in this country and world. So he tells us, wait patiently for God 
Don't get upset with him and think, don't you know what time it is, Lord? (laughs) It's my time. It's high time. We can work ourselves into attitudes if we're not careful. So can you contend with the Almighty and instruct Him? Sometimes if I start to begin to have any kind of a thought like that, I say, wait a minute, He knows everything. He knows exactly what He's doing. It's not Him that's the problem. It's me. He doesn't have any problems, well, except us. He doesn't have any problems of His own. He knows everything, understands everything. He knows exactly how, when, what, where, and who. You think he hasn't got it pretty well figured out by now who he's going to draw to build his temple in Jerusalem? Don't you think he's examined the hearts of tens of thousands of people whom you and I don't even know all over the world and he has this thing all figured out ahead of time. So when the time is right, he says, I will stir them to come. And he's not going to stir the wrong ones. He'll stir the right ones. Because he is ahead of the game. As always. How would you like to try to figure out who really is and who really isn't righteous out of all the church that is around the world? Don't even know them. We we, we wouldn't have a chance. All right. Some minister somewhere says... I'm going to build a church, whether it's United or Philadelphia or us or whoever it might be. I'm going to build a church. I think I'll go round up some members. I want only the best ones, the best that there was from worldwide. So he sets out on a search to find good members. Good luck, mister. How are you going to sort it out? (laughs) You have no idea, no clue. You and I can see that from the past. Local congregations. And we thought so-and-so was a pillar of the church. There is someone full of faith and commitment and dedication and service and love, and they would never depart. And in some cases, they were the first to go. And there was old Billy Joe on the back row, And everybody thought, oh, what is he even doing here in the first place? Uh, I I can't see any reason that person's there. I don't see any fruits of the Spirit or fruits of conversion or, you know, whatever you thought about Billy Joe on the back row. And some of those Billy Joes are still faithful today. But no one would have judged to stick around. And the ones that they thought would be are very frequently gone. So good luck figuring out where the good members are. (laughs) I'm thankful we have a God. We're supposed to be here to help them and to lead and guide and direct them in some respects, I think. I sure hope He sends us the good ones. You know? I've pastored a lot of churches in a lot of places. And I've seen a mixture of good ones and bad ones. I've seen a lot of things where problems were and other problems were. And that's not fun to work with. Wouldn't it be nice if everybody was full of love and joy and peace 
and forgiveness and patience and just loved each other. And they never said anything bad about anybody. They never put anybody down. They never judged anybody or condemned anybody. But they had the attitude of God. Wouldn't it be neat to be in a congregation like that? We have an opportunity to build one and be one. We're going to do it. God tells us to. He says, repent of the way we have been and the self-righteousness and exhibit nothing but the fruits of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. That's what he tells us to do. I asked you before if you'd thought of any sin you had. Well, there's a door we just opened. You can look inside there, examine the fruits of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And chances are you're going to find something in there you could work on these next three days. I bet you. So what does he say then? <clears throat> Verse 6, Then answered the Eternal to Job out of the whirlwind and said, again, like he had earlier, Gird up your loins now like a man. No more sissy boy. I will demand of you and declare you to me. He says, you better listen, Job, because I'm going to tell you some things, and I am going to demand an answer from you. Now, that makes it a little different than his three friends, who would reason with him and philosophize and accuse him and all kinds of stuff. God says, now, I'm going to say some more things to you, and then you are going to have to give me an answer. This is entering scary territory. I don't even like the idea of God coming to me and giving me a speech like this and telling me in the middle of it, when I get on, I want to hear from you. And I don't want you to be a pipsqueak. I want you to rise up and gird your loins like a man. Oh, Will you also disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be righteous? Now, I think there's a very key verse. Job had in some ways apparently allowed himself to think he is just as good as you is. I'm as good as God. Now, hasn't God from the very beginning of this talk been saying there's a vast difference between you and me. Where were you when I is the theme here. So then he says, now, wait a minute, I've been telling you all these things to show the difference between you and me. And now I'm going to say some more and then you're going to have to answer. And he changes the theme somewhat here. Now he's not showing the greatness of God compared to the low value of Job by comparison. Now he's saying, what about your thought processes, Job? Have you been a bit over-righteous? Have you had too high an opinion of yourself? Now that's a spiritual sin in the New Testament. But not understood as a sin as Satan would have understood it in the Old Testament. But God said, do you see any sin in him? I don't. 
Well, no, he's not, he's not doing that or that or that. But he didn't understand this. Now, God is going to make Job understand it. Have you gotten to the point that you might have thought a little too highly of yourself? And that's why he's been humbling him so steadfastly. Have you then an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like Him? Now he's not just talking about the things that God had done. Now he's talking about His own power per se. Compared to Job's. Deck yourself now with majesty and excellency and array yourself with glory and beauty. Perform the first resurrection on yourself, why don't you, Job? (laughs) You know? Transform yourself. Make yourself wonderful. Cast abroad the rage of your wrath, and behold everyone that is proud, and abase him. Have you got the power to work yourself into an angry frenzy and straighten everybody out? Isn't that what sometimes we try to do in self-righteousness, is straighten everybody else out? One at a time, maybe, but that's what self-righteousness is all about. Behold everyone that is proud and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Can you do that, Job? You know what? God's going to. Read the prophecies. Read Revelation. God is going to knock it all flat. He will abase the proud. Well, you got to work with your own people first and get them humble and meek and loving and kind and gentle and love each other as much as they love themselves and love God more than anything. That's the whole point of this whole exercise on this earth. And he says, if you can't love to love each other, I'm not going to love you or forgive you. But he doesn't say, I won't love you. He says, I won't forgive you. But if he won't forgive you, then he's going to destroy you. So you won't be around anymore to be loved. Hide the proud in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. If you can humble all the wicked on earth and all the proud, then I'll say you can glorify yourself. Then I'll say you can be as great as you apparently have come to think you are. Behold now Behemoth, which I made with you. He eats grass as an ox, and now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly, And he goes on to describe how his bones are like brass and bars of iron, the chief of the ways of God. Uh, And he says, approach him. Can you humble everybody that's proud? How about someone, verse 23, that drinks up a river and hastes not? He trusts that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He takes it with his eyes, his nose pierces through snares. Set a trap through him, and he just busts right through it. Take this one on. And I think we'll find here, we'll go on a little bit, I won't hit too much of this for sake of time, but 
I think he's talking about someone here as an analogy who is a real being and still exists and still has the kind of power that God is ascribing to him as he goes through this. Chapter 41, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or his tongue with a cord which you let down? Can you put a hook in his nose or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he beg you to let him go and don't hurt him? Will he speak soft words to you? Will he make a covenant with you, try to make a deal so you don't destroy him or hurt him? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will he just mind you and do what you say? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? Shall your companions make a banquet of him? Part him among the merchants? In other words, kill him and sell him in pieces? Can you fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Do no more. The hope in him is vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who has prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? And so on. Who can put a bridle on him? His teeth are terrible. His scales are his pride. Shut up together as with a closed seal. So near that not even air can come in. So how are you going to poke a stick in there and kill him? Uh, Let's go on down. Out of his nostrils goes smoke as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindles coals. Where have people gotten these ideas of monsters and so on that breathe fire out their noses and so on? His heart is as firm as a stone, as hard as millstone. When he raises up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. Can't hang on to your sword if you go against it. He esteems iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow can't make him flee. Darts are counted as stubble. He laughs at the shaking of a spear. He makes the deep to boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Uh, He makes a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Notice 33 and 4. Upon earth there is not his like who is made without fear. He beholds all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Who is the proudest? Who rules over the proud? Is it God? He rules over and takes care of the humble and the meek. Satan loves pride. And he instills pride in human beings. And can you go up against him? No. We're told. You can't do it. You have to use Christ's name, God's name, if you're going to fight Satan. He says, put on the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation, 
the faith, you know, all the things that he says there that you need in God. Who had Job been up against? Satan the devil. He is the one that had done all these things to him. So God says, you don't compare to me, Job. Don't question me. And Satan does not compare to me. Don't listen to him. You are just you. Now, it's Job's time to answer. Let's see what he says and see if that fits what I've been describing here in reading these scriptures. Then Job answered the Eternal and said, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. He had kind of gotten the picture, hadn't he? <laughs> After all that God described, he says, no, nobody can hold a candle to you, God. Who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. I've been sitting here talking and mewling and philosophizing with my friends all this time and trying to sort all this out. And he says, I really wasn't getting the picture. I didn't understand. There are things so wonderful me, wonderful that you have described to me which I did not grasp. I didn't know them. I didn't get it. How great you are as compared to me. Here I beseech you and I will speak. I will demand of you and declare you to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. We've heard of God. We're hearing by the ear at this moment. But now my eye sees. You can hear, but when do you see? And what was his assessment of what he saw? Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. I finally see what you are compared to me, and I thought I was pretty righteous. I thought I could even contend with you once in a while. I thought I was big enough as a man to take care of the proud and the haughty and to solve the problems of people around me. God brought all that stuff out, didn't he? So it must have been things that Job had thought and perhaps done and had a very high opinion of himself and how uh, important and how uh, persuasive he might be. And suddenly he realized, oh, I'm a worm like Jacob. <laughs> I'm nothing. I repent in dust and ashes. And it was so that after the Eternal had spoken these words to Job, he had another word for somebody else. He said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job has. Now, Everything that Job had said is included there in verses 1 
through 4, or 1 through 5. You are great, I am not. Basically sums it up. He got what God was telling him, and he came up, stood up like a man, and said, I was wrong. You were far greater than me, and I am nothing. Probably took a lot of humility to say that. And he had been served a good portion of humility in order to be able to say it. But he didn't go over and curl up in a corner and say, Oh, poor, 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 pitiful me. I have so many problems and God has just dumped everything on me and I'm no good for nothing. I think I'll eat worms and die. No. God had told him, don't do that. He says, I want you to gird your loins like a man and stand up and answer me. Oh, okay. I see how great thou art, and I see how small I am. That's what God wanted to hear from Job. And that's what he wanted to hear from the three friends that he didn't hear. You haven't spoken what's right like Job just did in five verses. Actually, not uh, not even five, just four, because the first one he wasn't saying anything. I know you can do any and everything. And you read every thought. And you're great. And I'm not. But I'm not going to give up and not live. He's implying there that you are so great, I think I'm going to continue to worship you. That's what God wanted to hear. Absolute honor and glory to God. Far above us. So he said, you and your friends haven't done so well. I want you to go get some burnt offerings and offer them before me. Uh, and I'll deal with you after your folly in that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So they went and did according as God commanded them. And the Eternal accepted Job. Now, I think the terms of his acceptance of Job are highly important for you and me to think about. The Eternal turned the captivity of Job, back Satan off of him, when he prayed for his friends. God does not forgive us unless we forgive others. And even though Job had spoken the right thing and had gotten his relationship with God right, all this rancor and frustration and accusation that all his friends had made to him, Job forgave and prayed for them. And then is when God recognized that he could have the relationship with Job that was desired because Job was praying for his friends who had sinned against him. And God had just said they were and told them to go offer burnt offerings. 
There's some incredible lessons here for you and me. What does it boil down to? What does this whole 42 chapters boil down to? Honor and praise and glory to God and love Him more than anything else in the universe. And love your neighbors as yourselves. Job hadn't been doing that. Now he was. And God was happy and called Satan off and said, No, you went through a lot, but boy, you're better off now. And his friends from all over gave him rings and he had seven sons and three daughters and they were the most beautiful girls in the land and Job was twice as rich as he had ever been. God made it up to him in so many ways. If we will rend our hearts and not our garments and turn to God with our whole heart, he says, we will find him and he will be found of us. Just as Job found him, and God was found of Job.